Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. I have decided this morning that I want to read from the number one best-selling book of all time, the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but uh, there was a... uh, study done, and it looks like back in 1994, 95, over 5 billion copies of God's Word have been distributed and and sold throughout the world. And so this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. If you would stand with me in honor of God's Word, we're going to be reading from the most uh, popular book in all the world. And the thing about it is every word that we're going to be reading about is truth and has the power When believed, taken by faith, it can transform and and change our lives. So as I read, I pray that you would have ears to hear, that we would pay attention to the words that I'm going to be reading, and then in just a minute, I hope to, by God's grace, uh, bring out the truths that are found in, some of the truths that are found in this passage. But we're going to be continuing in our teaching series in Romans chapter 12. We're just looking at two verses this morning, and so, but I want to let you know, It's going to be a full sermon, even though it's just two verses, because there is a lot in this passage. So let's look at Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, as uh, we come to you again this morning, as you have been uh, faithful to us this past week to bring us back together as your people And as we have been opening your life-transforming word, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, take your word and renew our minds with your timeless truths. Lord, we ask that you would transform us into the image of your Son to be more like Jesus, Lord. I pray that you would take my weaknesses, my stammering tongue. Um, I pray that you would overcome all obstacles this morning and that you would be seen. I pray that you would help us to hear I pray pray not only that, but that you would help us to respond to what you speak to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the second best-selling book of all time, you may or may not know. Does anyone know what that book is? The Pilgrim's Progress. At least it was when I was growing up. The Pilgrim's Progress is a Christian allegory that was written in 1678 by a preacher by the name of John Bunyan while he was in prison. He was imprisoned for his faith, for his love in in Jesus. And so he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress while he was in jail. And in this, uh, it's an adventure uh, tale that chronicles the progress of a man named Christian who leaves the city of destruction. If you've read it, you know that he leaves the city of destruction headed for the celestial city, headed for heaven. 
And in one section of his journey, Christian is accompanied by another believer by the name of Hopeful. And as they are traveling on the pathway, on the straight and narrow way, um, just like in life, the path becomes difficult. And their feet begin to get sore, and uh, they, they begin to get tired. And they notice that just across the way, there's a, there's a parallel path that's full of grass. It looks easier. And they're like, you know what, why don't we travel on this pathway for just a little bit, and then we'll get back on to the way. And that's what they decide to do. Does that sound familiar as believers? Sometimes we want to find that, that easier pathway, and then we'll get back. We'll start following God again. Uh, once we get uh, to a place that we've got more strength. But they make the mistake of getting off of the pathway, and they end up falling asleep in a field that happens to belong to a giant by the name of Despair. And this giant captures these two pilgrims, takes them to Doubting Castle, and throws them into a dark, dreary dungeon without food, sunlight, or water for four days. So as you might uh, guess, these uh, pilgrims are very discouraged. And on top of that, the giant's wife gives counsel that he needs to go down there with a giant wooden club and just beat them mercilessly. And that's what he does. He goes down there and beats them. And for the next few days, he tortures them. And he's, his job, his desire is to break their spirit. He wants them to give up and to despair, and to despair to the point where they will take their own life. And it gets pretty bad. And they think about it. But by the grace of God, they do not do so. And one morning... Christian remembers something. He remembers that he has a key close to his heart that was given to him by the Lord at his conversion. And that key was the key that, was una- that, that is able to unlock any door in Doubting Castle. It's the Word of God. It's the promises of God. And so he takes the key out and goes to the lock, and sure enough, it springs wide open. He ends up opening two more doors and is finally set free. They escape the castle of doubt, and they get back on the pathway, and they head for the celestial city. Now, I, I share that story with us this morning because there are many times that we can be like pilgrim and hopeful. We can find ourselves trapped in dungeons within our hearts, and within our minds and within our souls. Sometimes it can be the, 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 uh, the dungeon of despair. Sometimes it's a dungeon of lust. Sometimes it's that nagging past, that thing you did in the past that just you wish you hadn't done it, or the thing that you wish you had done in the past that you didn't do. It just keeps nagging you, the, the regrets. Sometimes it is a dungeon of crippling fear about the future, things that you don't yet know about. There's hundreds of other dungeons that we can find ourselves in. And like the two travelers, these prisons can prevent us from fulfilling our life purpose. What is our life purpose? To glorify God, right? To glorify God by making much of his son. That is our purpose, to glorify God in whatever situation we are in. And and what I want us to see this morning is that just as Christian was given a key to unlock the doors of his prison so that he could get back onto the king's highway, 
we too, listen, we too have been given a key that's found in today's passage to encourage and to motivate us and to unlock the prisons and dungeons that sometimes keep us from living lives that glorify God. So if you're taking notes and if you've got a weekly on the back of it, you can fill in the blanks on the back. But if you're taking notes, the first gospel truth that I want to see from our passage is that the gospel is the key. So I'm just going to give it right up front here. The gospel is the key. As we begin in in chapter 12, uh, Paul, we're going to see that Paul is entering into a, a major new section in his letter where he begins to unpack how the gospel that he preached back in chapters 1 through 11, how that gospel is meant to shape and to influence the way we live our lives. Chapters 12 to 16, these are, these are chapters of application, how we apply what Paul has already taught in chapters 1 through 11. And he, be, he begins with an appeal. Let's look at verse 1. He says, I appeal to you. Notice he doesn't say, I command you. He says, I beg you. I plead strongly with you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Notice that there's two phrases here I want to look at. The phrase of therefore and by the mercies of God. Now, if you've been studying the word for any amount of time, you know that when you see the word therefore, you need to stop and ask, wherefore is this therefore therefore, right? Thank you, Billy. Because... Because there's something that the author is referring to that he's previously written about or said. And so in context, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the first 11 chapters that he's, where he's been, again, unpacking the gospel and its ramifications. He's saying because of that, by the mercies of God, you know what he's saying there? That's just another way of saying the gospel. He's repeating himself. He said, that's shorthand for the gospel. He's basically saying this, I appeal to you that if you believe, listen, if you believe everything that I wrote to you in verses, in chapters one through 11, if you believe all that I taught taught you about Jesus and what his sacrificial death means and how we're reconciled to God, if you believe that, then let that be your motivation to do everything I'm about to share with you in chapters 12 to 16. So what I want us to see here is that the gospel is the key to setting us free and empowering us to serve God from a joyful heart of gratitude. Now, likewise, let me say this. If you can't say that you agree with what Paul has said in chapters 1 through 11, if you don't, aren't convinced of God's unmerited love for you and sacrificial love for you, if you're not convinced of that, then don't move forward to chapters 12 to 16 because they will be drudgery to you, especially today's message of what I'm about to share, what, what he says uh, after what he has just said. You've you, you got to have the proper heart motivation which is, comes from the gospel in order to be able to joyfully obey. So the first thing I want us to see is that believing the gospel is the key. It's the key to the inspiration that we need for obeying God. Secondly, if you're taking notes, I want you to see that the gospel demands a response. 
That's the second gospel truth I want to see, that the gospel demands a response. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, and here's the response, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, Paul could have ended his letter with chapter 11, couldn't he? He could have said, you know what? Jesus paid it all. He loves you. He's made you right with God. I'll see you in heaven. The end. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because the gospel demands a response. It is meant to affect the way that we live our lives practically. The gospel should affect the way that we live our lives practically. Look at what John Stott says. He says that no worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. The gospel must, is meant to produce action from within. And in light of the gospel, that response involves us presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, What is a sacrifice? Think about that. When you think about sacrificing something, what is a sacrifice? Well, a sacrifice is a personal possession of yours. That's why it's personal. A personal possession that you offer up to God. And here's what you understand. Understanding that it no longer belongs to you. That's a sacrifice. You're giving something that If it's to God, it should be valuable to you. It should be your best. You're giving it to God, understanding this is no longer mine. And in context context of today, Paul says it's your body that God is is after. But I want us to to remember something as we're moving forward. This is not an atoning sacrifice. You offering your body up to him is not to pay for your sins. Why? Why? We already have an atoning sacrifice. Who is that? Jesus is, right? Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. So this sacrifice, in light of what Jesus did, is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of worship to God, of praise and worship and gratitude. We're offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God with no strings attached. In other words, when you present your body to the Lord as a living sacrifice, what you're saying is, um, what you're doing is you're putting to death your right to live your life as you choose. Let me say that again. You're putting to death your right to live your life as you choose. Your body no longer belongs to you. And that sounds, if you're a believer, and, and I, love this, I love preaching this kind of stuff, right? I just love to preach it. But there's a problem. In, in reality, and somebody, I don't know who said this, but I've heard it growing up, but a living sacrifice keeps crawling off the altar. <laughs> right? It keeps crawling off the altar. And so it's a constant, intense, and daily decision, believers, to present your bodies to Jesus. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he says, which is your spiritual worship? Which is your spiritual worship? Now that word spiritual means reasonable. It means rational. 
you might have a translation that reads, which is your reasonable and ra- or rational worship. And basically what that's saying is, look, when you look at Jesus, when you look at and consider who he is, how beautiful he is, how magnificent he is, how perfect he is, and how merciful he is, how gracious he is, how patient he is, uh, how giving he is, and all that he's done for you. And you begin to look at him and, and you begin to see who he is and what he's done for you. The most rational and sensible and reasonable thing you can do is offer your body as a living sacrifice. It's kind of like Sleeping Beauty. You remember the story of Sleeping Beauty? There's the prince, Prince Charming, who's going to save a princess who pricked her finger on a spindle, and she falls asleep, and uh, only true love can awaken her, (laughs) right? And so this prince risks his life through many uh, trials, and, and at the end, he slays a fiery, fire-breathing dragon, and goes and awakens her with uh, the kiss, the, with a kiss. <laughs> now imagine she wakes up, and she, she, with her lip service, goes, thank you, and then she goes back over to the spindle, touches it, and goes, I'd rather go back to sleep. Goes back to bed and rolls over and goes to sleep. That would be what? unreasonable, right? That would not be reasonable. The reasonable thing would be at least to consider his offer to marry her. That it, she, she may not need, she might not be the right one, but in the story she is and they go live happily ever after. I'm digressing here. With that said, there are many who read a passage like this, even believers, and they go, you know, do I have to offer my body as a living sacrifice in order to be saved? I think I've answered that at least three times already. But the question is kind of like, what's the least? What's the least I can sacrifice and, you know, meet this passage? And if you're living your life like that, if that's how you look at Jesus, if that's how you look at serving his church, if that's how you look at loving the world around you, there's, there's one reason you're doing that. It's because you're missing the glory of who Jesus really is. Or you've forgotten who Jesus really is. Jesus says that he is like a, a treasure that's hidden in a field. That this man, I don't know how the man finds it, but he's in a field that's not his, and he finds this treasure. And what does Jesus say he does? That guy covers it back up. And in his joy, in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has and he goes and purchases that treasure, that field to get that treasure. That's how, how it is with Jesus. When we see who he really is, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth grow strangely dim, right? And we want to give everything We want to sacrifice everything to Jesus. We want to say, you can have it all because of who you are and what you've done. To live any other way as a believer other than a living sacrifice is simply unreasonable.
Paul continues on in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul is now transitioning from the body to the mind. Not the brain, but the mind. And if you're taking notes, this is the third gospel truth I want us to see is that you're either being conformed or you're being transformed. You're either being conformed to this world or you're being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And we need to realize that the world that we live in, and when we say world here, we're talking about this world system that we live in that is directly in rebellion to God. It is always actively seeking to conform us into its image. Now, the word conformed means to be changed or to be influenced by either your environment or by those you are around. And you're being conformed in order to fit in. Okay? That's what it means to be conformed. You, you want to fit in. Now, I do want to make a say here that conformity is not always a bad thing church. Um, it is wise sometimes to conform to our cultural norms that are not sinful. It's sometimes it is wise to use technology in uh, a way to be relevant within the culture that we are living in. For example, the clothes that we wear should fit the time period in which we live, okay? Don't dress like a pilgrim unless you're trying to reach a colony of pilgrims. Do you understand what I'm saying? You, you don't, you want to conform to the culture in which you live in ways that are not sinful. You don't want to stand out in weird and unrelatable ways. We're weird enough as it is, okay? So in ways that we can conform, uh, we need to do so. Paul says that he became all things to all people, in unsinful ways, in order that he might win some. And so sometimes we do need to conform to society in order to fit in and in order to be relatable in ways that are not sinful. Now, I think what Paul is talking about and what he's warning against, the conformity that he's warning against, is that temptation that we all have to compromise our faith to compromise the way that we live so that we will be accepted by this world that has rejected Jesus. We're all tempted to that. That's what happened to Peter, isn't it? When he stood around the fire at Jesus' trial, he allowed himself to be conformed to everyone that was around that fire. He didn't want to stand out. He, he didn't want to lose his life. And this, this world is, is trying to get us to accept its philosophies, it's trying to get us to accept its morals and its beliefs that the ones that are in direct rebellion to God. And that's where scripture teaches us to be in the world. We're, we're to be in the world, right? But not what? Of it. God is saying, do not allow the environment that I have placed you in to reach. Don't allow it to reach you. Don't allow it to force you and to squeeze you into its mold, to conform you into its image. Rather, and here's the answer to how not to be conformed, he says, rather be transformed. How? 
by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed means to change the essential form or nature of something. Like the metamorphosis of a caterpillar from a uh, caterpillar into a glorious butterfly. You know, that word transformed is the exact same word that's used in Matthew 17 when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain. And it says that Jesus was transfigured or he was transformed before them. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Now, I want to make a distinction here when we talk about being transformed into the image of Christ. We're not talking that about us all being little Christs and that we're all going to reach uh, Christendom. No, Christ, Christ, consciousness. Christ consciousness. Thank you, Terry. That's not what we're talking about here. Now, one day, Scripture says, when we see him, we'll be like him. So it sounds like we're going to get bodies that are like his. But right now, he's talking about the inward transformation where we become more like Christ. We think like Christ. We love like Christ. We live like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, but we all, I don't think I have these on slides, so you're going to have to really listen to this one, okay? But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. In this passage, Paul is talking about when we look at Jesus, again, when we look at him, and when we see his glory, we're transformed by it, by beholding him, by worshiping him, by making much of him. This morning, if you've worshiped him this morning, God is working to transform you through you seeing who he really is. So church, I want us to see that you're either being conformed or you're being transformed. And I want you to ask, which one is it? Think about your life. Are you, being, are you conforming to the world that the Lord has put you in or are you being transformed? And are you a transform agent that God can use for you to transform the culture that you're living in at your home, um, at your school, at work, in your community. Now, that brings the question of how does he do it? H how does God bring about transformation that, that we've been talking about? Let's look at verse 2 again. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, which leads us to the, our fourth and final gospel truth, and, and that is renewed minds produce transformed, discerning disciples. So if we're going to be true tra change agents in this world that God has placed us, then we have to continually... This, the answer to this is really simple. I think most of us know the answer to this, and that is by submitting ourselves to and, and saturating our minds in the Word of God. I think that that's the primary way that, that Paul is, is talking about here. And, you know, although the, uh, the, the Word of God, although the Bible is the world's best-selling book of all time, I think in our generation that it's also the most least read and studied book. Uh, even by those, um, sadly, who... Uh, claim to 
love and, and to know the Lord. I'm not saying that, that if you're not a, a, a student of the word that you're not a believer. Um, the scriptures are clear that uh, that, that can happen. But if we are going to renew our minds, and if we're going to grow in discernment, uh, we must grow in our love for God's Word. Last week, I, I referenced a passage, Hebrews uh, chapter 5, when I was talking about milk and solid food. I want to read, read from that passage to you. I want to read the Word of God to you, and I want to show you what it talks about discernment. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now, let me, let me stop right there. I want you to, I want you to uh, as I'm reading this, I want you to discern who are you in this passage, okay? Are you a child who still wants milk or verse 14, but solid food is for the mature. And look at this. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In other words, a consistent diet of God's word brings us to maturity and trains our powers of discernment to distinguish between what is good and evil. Which one are you in that passage? I want you to look, I want to look at 2 Timothy 3. This is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and he says this in verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, all who resist being conformed by this world and all who seek to be transformed by the renewing of their minds will be persecuted by this world. Verse 13 says, while evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood, this is where, hey, this is where as um, a church, it's so important to teach our children the word of God from childhood. And I love what we're, what's, what we're doing uh, in Reach Kids right now. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We are, I don't think I have to convince our church that we are living in a, in a day and an age where we desperately need godly discernment, don't we? Godly discernment that comes from God's word. And, you know, if our discernment is not grounded in a, in a deep love for God, it's not, if it's not grounded in a deep love for his word, if it's not grounded in a deep love for the fellowship of his people, then our discernment will come primarily from our experiences. It'll come from our feelings. It will come from our thoughts. And it will come from the opinions of those who are around us. And let, let me just say that, you know, all of those play a role 
play a role in our lives and in our development, but it cannot replace the discernment that we receive from renewing our minds in God's word. I want to um, give an example of how can we dis- of, of discernment. And I want to use something that I said we're going to talk about last week, uh, the Asbury revivals. Um, those, are, those are what, um, uh, they were a two-week worship and prayer gatherings that recently began at Asbury University. And um, a lot of people are saying, that is revival. God's um, moving upon that, and, and true revival is about to spread from uh, Asbury. There's others on this side saying that is not revival, and they point out things that are going on that are, that are not from God. And so we've got different views on it. I'm sure if you know about this, you've got a view. You might, well, you've got, you, you should have a view on it. But the, I'm using this as an example of how can we know if it is or not. How do we have discernment on whether or not this is a true revival? Um, because there are so many people, like I said, making judgments. And a lot of them are based upon experiences, feelings, thoughts, and opinions. So, let me just say this. If you study the Word of God, if you study where there is a spiritual awakening and growth in the Christian church, like in the book of Acts, that was starting with Acts 2, right? That's one of the greatest revivals ever. 3,000 people were saved. If you study uh, Scripture like that, if you look at the Old Testament where revival breaks out amongst the people of God, and, and if you study the the revivals of the 17th and and 18th century. Um, Pastor Tim Keller says that he he studied these things and he gives the earmarks of what a true revival are based upon the scriptures and based upon experiences of revivals that, that we can look at now and go, that was a revival. And here's what he found. The first thing is that it always, revival always involves a rediscovery of the gospel. That is a rediscovery of the wonder of grace, the radical nature of Christ's accomplishment of salvation on our behalf. So the gospel has to be in there, and it's it's like there's a reawakening to the gospel. Secondly, there is always corporate prayer. Corporate prayer always uh, uh, precedes a revival. It's extraordinary, kingdom-centered, prevailing prayer across the ordinary walls that divide Christians. And then he says, we need to keep in mind that no two revivals ever look the same. So they're not reproducible. You can't make revivals happen. And then he gives three parts of a revival. Once the revival begins, there's three things that happen, at least three things that happen. Number one, nominal church members get saved. Nominal church members get saved, and that is there are those who are within the church who realize that they have never truly understood the gospel. They've never truly experienced the the new birth, and in a revival, that happens. They get converted. Secondly, sleepy Christians who are saved wake and experience a renewed sense of God's love and assurance of salvation, and through deep repentance, begin to rid themselves of idols 
in their lives, which only enhances their joy and the joy of the church. And then there's a third thing that happens, and that is that non-believers outside the church are attracted to the revived Christian community in remarkable numbers. They're attracted to what God is doing within the church. And because of the conversion of nominal members and the assurance of believers, the church community itself becomes beautified. Christians begin to reach out in love to their community in striking ways. The cold tribal attitudes ordinarily present in non-revived churches melt away. Non-believers are drawn in and the church grows at an amazing speed. That's, in a nutshell, what marks a true revival. So, what does discernment say about Asbury? It says we don't know. Discernment would say that based upon what I just shared. It's, it's too early to know whether it's a revival. Now, we know that God is doing good, has done good things there. We know that people have gotten saved. And we also know that there's bad things that have happened there. There's bad things that happen in the book of Acts when revival breaks out. Okay, Just because bad things happen does not mean it's not revival. Just because people get saved does not mean it's revival. It's too early to discern. And that's what I would encourage the church on, that, on a situation like that. It's kind of like um, when a... Uh, a mother gets pregnant, and it's very early, and it's like, I wonder if it's a boy or a girl. Do you remember uh, those of us uh, when ultrasounds didn't exist? And you had to wait nine months, but you would find out eventually. But there were, you know, there were methods um, to how to discern whether or not a boy, it was a boy or a girl without an ultrasound. It's the way you carry the baby, Right? It's the, how strong your morning sicknesses are. And the one I liked and loved the most was the needle thread one. You take a needle and you hold it over the, the baby, the stomach. And if it goes right, it'll go in a circle. If it goes right, it's a boy. If it goes left, it's a girl. Oh yeah, I know. It was so accurate. You had a 50-50 chance, right? <laughs> You know, I know that my, my sermon's going to go a little bit longer because about what I'm about to share, but it's funny because I learned that when I, when I did it, I learned I could think right and it would start to go right. I could think because you can, you can manipulate it. But you know what? I think that's kind of like what it's, what it's like to have discernment apart from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. We use our experiences a lot of times. We're guessing, hoping that, you know, we're discerning God's will. When, when what we need to do, church, is to love the Word of God. And not just by yourself. We need to do it in a community amongst other people who are doing the same thing. You can be passionate. Be, read the Word of God and you can become passionate about, be compa- um, passionate about what you're reading and be totally off. I am a great example of that. I got in isolation reading the Word of God, and I ended up leaving my wife and newborns. Now, this was 30 years ago, okay? So I'm I'm telling you, moved out west in my car for three months, 
backpacked, lived with homeless people, got arrested at the Mormon temple, uh, all thinking I was following God. I had passion. I was literally on fire. That's why I tell people, don't be on fire. Just be a candle. (laughs) Just be a candle. Don't be on fire. But we need other people who are seeking the Lord, who are renewing their minds. They go, hey, okay, let's think about what you're about to do. Okay, don't jump that off of that cliff. Or, you know what, you need to jump over here. We need to be in a community that's encouraging one another. So the point that I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to get to now as I close out is, is just asking you a question. How seriously are you taking this message that I just preached? That's a question I'm asking myself. How seriously am I going to take the words that Paul has given us by the mercies of God to offer myself as a living sacrifice, to have my mind renewed? In other words, do, do, when I leave this place, when you leave this place, do you have any intentions to take a step forward? Do you really believe in your heart Listen, ask you, do you really believe in your heart what Paul wrote in chapters 1 through 11? That is, do you believe that you are broken because of sin? And that because of sin, you have rebelled against God. And that because you've rebelled against God, you and I deserve his wrath. Do you believe that? Secondly, do you believe that God loves you and that apart from anything good you ever did, he decided to pay for your sin, to be crucified, to be punished in your place on the cross so that if you put your faith in him, you could be justified, not by works, but by faith in Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus's work. Do you believe that fully? Do you believe that God is that if you're in Christ Jesus, that there is now no condemnation for you. There is never, there's not in the past, there's not in the present, there never ever will be condemnation for you because you're in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe, in other words, the gospel? Do you believe that God loves you and that he's coming back for you and that there really is a kingdom after this life that we're living in? Those are questions you need to ask yourself. Do you really believe that? If the answer is yes, then I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world anymore. But by the grace of God, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen? Amen. By God's grace, may we respond today.